Welcome to Clothes Horse, the podcast that is literally recorded next to a closet full of clothes. I'm your host, Amanda, and those clothes belong to me. It's another glamorous day in the life of a podcaster. If you've been listening for a while, then you know I'm pretty dubious when a brand claims to be embracing sustainability. After all, what does the word sustainability even mean? There isn't a legal definition, so it can be hard to parse out whether or not a brand or a collection are sustainable. And pretty much everyone can say they're sustainable because, like I said, there's no legal parameters around what sustainability means. I've been wanting to learn more about this too. One, so I could speak about it more effectively here on the pod, but also so I could understand it for any of my future business endeavors. Like I said, it's so confusing, right? It's lack of clarity makes it confusing. So I've started a certificate program created by Fashion Revolution. I just finished week one and I already feel like I've learned so much. So let's start with the word sustainability. It's a complex concept. And as I've said, there isn't a universal agreement, especially in the fashion industry, around what it means. In its simplest sense and, and how I look at it, sustainability is all about maintaining both life on Earth and the ecosystems that support that life, from our oceans and rivers to the air we breathe, biodiversity across the planet and up and down the food chain, our forests, our grasslands, and, and you know, also the humans that live here too. Like it's all part of this planet. In other words, addressing human needs within planetary boundaries is the basis of creating a sustainable society. Well, that's a lot to unpack too. I don't know if I made it any clearer, right? Okay, so let's let's take a look at that. So first off, there's human needs, right? And they're complex, especially now in a time when the lines between need and want are so blurred. You know what I'm talking about. Yes, we need food, water, air, shelter, and clothing, but we also need safety, freedom, good health, love, friendship, trust. And you know what? We also need self-fulfillment. Like that's a basic need. But we also want all of these things too, right? So it gets kind of hazy. Like where do we cut off our consumption? When when have we fulfilled the need and we're now just meandering into want territory, right? I don't know. That's a question we're all working to answer. Okay, but what do I mean by planetary boundaries? I mean, it sounds so astrological. Like, are planetary boundaries referring to just how much I, as a super vain Leo, should spend on skincare products? Because I want to know more about that. But no, we're going a little bit more sciencey here. And yes, there might be some science to astrology. I mean, ask me how many astrology books I own. It's it's a lot. <laughs> it's a whole stack. But we're talking about science right now. So when we're talking about planetary boundaries in relation to sustainability, we're referring to a framework created by Johann Ruckström and his team of 28 scientists in 2007. They identified nine measurable planetary boundaries that we humans must stay within if we want the world to continue to develop and flourish for future generations. If we exceed them, we risk running out of resources for the future. And not only would we run out of these things, we could create 
irreversible environmental changes like, you know, climate change, right? So what are these planetary boundaries? Our consumption of fresh water, greenhouse gas emissions, ocean acidification, which by the way, acidification is caused by increased carbon in the air, which we're experiencing right now. So it's directly tied to both global warming and greenhouse gas emissions. The next thing on the list of planetary boundaries actually is global warming. So you're starting to see like how these things are all interconnected, right? There's also depletion of the ozone layer, chemical pollution, which can be tied into ozone layer, land use, biodiversity lost and the extinction of species, which is caused by all the things I listed above, including land use. So you're noticing how all of these things are linked together. And that that's right, because Rookstrom's mapping of all of these boundaries is actually a big circle showing how they are all connected. So that was the sciencey part of it, but let's explain it in a different metaphor, because once again, sustainability is so complicated, and yet at the same time, it's kind of simple, because in its most basic form, it's living within our means. So let's think about that on personal terms. Imagine that you make, I don't know, $4,000 a month, and this is after taxes, so this is the money in your pocket. Well, you have a $300 car payment, your rent is $1,500, so right there, $1,800 you just spent. You spend about $20 eating out each day, which comes to $600 in a month, maybe a little bit more. Your student loan payments are $300. Your phone is another $100. Let's say another $400 for other bills, you know, like your utilities, some groceries. So that brings you to $3,100 of your income. So you have like $900 left to the break-even point. Well, you need to get your hair done, so that's $100, and you can't forget about your nails, right? So let's say another $100 for the month, because you're not getting gels. Like, you're trying to be frugal here. You have to go out, right? So let's say you spend $100 per weekend on drinks and Ubers, which, to be honest, sounds pretty modest in 2020. I guess you're probably not spending that in 2020. Let's pretend it's in 2019. Very modest for 2019. So that's $400 in a month, though, that $100 per weekend. And then you have a bar studio membership because you have to look good. So that's another $150. What about clothes? Well, your budget is $300 a month, and you're struggling to stay within it, but you're trying. You spend another $200 on all kinds of miscellaneous things like makeup, toilet paper, glossier, soap, that kind of stuff. Okay, so wait a minute. I just totaled this all up, and you spent – are you ready? Bleep, 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 bleep. $4,400. And your income is only $4,000. So you overspent by $400. But you know what? You can carry that as credit card debt and maybe try to pay it off next month. But if you do that every month and you don't pay it off, suddenly you have almost five grand in credit card debt at the end of the year. Isn't that terrifying? So that's what we as humans have been doing with our world. We're using more water than can be replenished. We're pushing way too many greenhouse gases into the air. And we're cutting down trees to make room for subdivisions and strip malls. Our environmental credit card debt is getting out of control. We can work out a payment plan, but we can't continue to rack up more debt while we're sorting that out. 
Well, that's what sustainability is. It's about us not only kind of paying back that debt that we already owe to the planet by trying to undo some of the damage, but it's also about us staying within those parameters, our planetary budget, if you will. So obviously sustainability applies to all aspects of every industry and our own personal lives, but how does it specifically pertain to fashion and retail? It means being thoughtful and strategic with the types of materials used in garments like moving away from synthetics and focusing on renewable and biodegradable materials. It means thinking about the manufacturing processes. And there's a whole lot there, right? It's not just the chemicals, treatments, and water use, but that's super important too, especially like think about all the stuff we've talked about when it comes to denim. It's disturbing. But we also have to think about the people involved. Like, what are their working conditions? What are their economic conditions? It also means looking at how materials and garments are moved across the world. Like, is it via air shipping, which has a crazy carbon footprint? Or is it slightly better because it's being shipped via boat or truck? I mean, that's something you think about. When we talk about the scale on which the fashion industry is working, the decisions we make about how to ship things have huge implications. And then on our end as customers, because, you know, we're not exempt from this either. It means looking at how quickly we're consuming and then discarding our clothes, which we talk about all the time, right? It means slowing that down and being more thoughtful about how we care for our clothing. And then, of course, we have to be even more thoughtful when it's time to dispose of our clothes. Like, don't put them in the trash can. All of the things I just said that are part of sustainability in fashion That's just the high-level version of it. There are so many steps and details in between, but you get the picture. So yes, there is a lot of responsibility on us, but it's also on the companies that we buy from, right? And that's why we have to push them to do better and push ourselves to do better. Okay, this is the thing, and I I know you're going to agree with me here. It's super hard to figure out who's really sustainable and who's not. Because once again, there isn't a clear measurement for it. Like I can't just pull out a ruler and a scale or a calculator and be like, beep, boop, boop, beep, beep, boop. That's my calculation noise if you didn't guess already. Here it is. Oh my God, I'm, I'm spitting out the verdict. You're sustainable. Woo! No, unfortunately, it's not that easy. But the more we learn about what sustainability is and the practices that get us there, the more we can sort of start to grade these brands and retailers and companies on how sustainable they are. In 2015, the UN developed a list called the Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. I'm going to call them SDGs a lot for the rest of this episode. It was seen as a universal call to action to end poverty, protect the planet, and ensure that all people enjoy peace and prosperity by 2030. 2030. So we have like 10 years, but then we're all going to be great. Like all the nightmares are going to be over. We're all going to live in harmony. Everyone's going to be safe and healthy and happy and super smart or something like that, right? (laughs) Okay. Well, there's 17 goals. And much like the planetary boundaries I discussed earlier, they're all interconnected. Of course they are, right? It would be hard to accomplish one without making progress on another. Number one is ending global poverty. I mean, why? Because it's kind of one of the most important pieces of the puzzle. 
That ties into the next few items on the list, like zero hunger, good health and well-being, quality education, access to clean water, decent work and opportunities, reduced inequalities, economic growth, and gender equality. As I listed these aloud, I'm realizing how fucked the U.S. is in terms of achieving these goals. Like, we're supposed to be one of the leaders of this initiative, and we are falling far behind already. That was just the first row of goals set out by the UN. Okay, so what else is there? Well, there's a lot of environmentally focused stuff, which you were expecting, like affordable and clean energy, responsible consumption of resources, preservation of water and air, and of course, no wars, like peace on earth is part of everyone on the planet having a better life. I'll share a link to the full details in the show notes because I think it's really fascinating. And once again, knowing these goals can help you figure out how to make the best decisions in your life and who to buy from and make your own decisions, right? For part of my homework this week, I looked at different brands and retailers to see how their sustainability messaging aligned with these SDGs. I was thinking like, okay, the more of these they check off, then the more sustainable they would seem to be. I mean, that makes sense, right? So I looked at three different retailers. Most retailers and brands at this point have a social responsibility, sustainability, corporate responsibility statement linked on their homepage. So if you want to do some sustainability detective work on your own, you can. And like, I hope I'm not alone here in saying this, but it was kind of fun. (laughs) So I started my exercise by looking at a retailer that I cannot name that is actually the parent company of several major retail chains. So how they're performing is pretty important. (sighs) Their sustainability messaging was pretty lackluster. They called out use of LED lighting that uses less electricity and a distribution center that uses solar power. Okay, well, that's legit. And that checks off SDG number seven, which is affordable and clean energy. So it's off to a good start, right? But the next two sustainability initiatives were nebulous at best. They claim to work with eco-friendly brands, which, I mean... What does that even truly say? It sounds like greenwashing to me. Like, first off, eco-friendly brand means nothing technically. And unless you're buying only from these so-called eco-friendly brands, your product offering is not 100% eco-friendly. But of course, that doesn't really matter because, you know, eco-friendly means nothing. Like, what? how do you prove that in court, right? <laughs> They also said that all of their packaging is recyclable, which is great, but there's no direction for customers about how to recycle. And is that all virgin materials that then can be recycled? Or are these post-consumer, meaning that they've already been recycled and they can also be recycled again? Like that's way better. So once again, this doesn't really tell me much. And I would give I would give this company a low score here. You know, they can do better. So next I looked at and other stories. They're owned by H&M, so I I wasn't expecting much. They use some organic cotton, and that's nice, but organic cotton uses way more water than regular old pesticidical cotton. I made that word up, but it sounds pretty good, right? (laughs) They also use some recycled fabrics, but I think, and this was just based on perusing the site, I think they're primarily synthetics, which, I mean, once again, synthetics are oil-based, We do have an episode coming up in a couple weeks where we talk about fabric recycling, and I've learned so much about recycling synthetic fabrics, and it's, I mean, I guess it's better than not recycling them, but it's not a great story either. (laughs) 
And Other Stories also has an in-store recycling program for clothing and beauty containers, just like H&M. And I think that's great as long as these things are truly being recycled. There's not a lot of transparency into that. They did have customer education around caring for and preserving your clothing, which I love, but you kind of have to dig around for it. But I will tell you, like, no matter whether you buy things from them or not, I thought that a lot of their information and videos were really helpful. So I would recommend checking it out. They also seem to be making serious efforts towards inclusion and diversity via retraining, reevaluation of policies and procedures, and creation of various development programs. So they checked off a few things, sort of. One was SDG number 10, which is reduced inequalities. SDG number 12, which is reduced consumption and production. And I would say maybe a little bit uh, number 13, which is climate action. So a better score than the first company I discussed. But once again, they only really checked off three of these SDGs and there's 17. And that would not be a good test score to only get three out of 17, right? Like, you'd probably have to have your parents sign that one and you'd have to hand it back into the teacher, right? Okay, so there's one more. And for this one, I decided to go smaller. And you might be familiar with this brand, you might not, but I feel like they're kind of cottage core. So I was feeling it. Uh, Love Shack Fancy. And Love Shack Fancy is a far more premium price point than the other two retailers I've talked about. Like a dress would be anywhere from close to $400 to maybe 1000 So not not cheap, not fast fashion. According to their website, they minimize fabric waste by reusing fabric and trim scraps. And that's awesome. They actually will reuse this fabric for trim and other pieces for other garments. So I like that. They also try to use organic fabrics whenever possible. And I mean, that could go either way. Like I said, with organic cotton, I guess it's better, but only slightly. And saying that you try to use organic fabrics, I don't know. What does that really mean, right? Would that hold up in court either way? They also use biodegradable packaging for shipping, which I can get behind, and I wasn't seeing this as often as I thought I would when I was looking at other retailers. So I like that. You know, there's a lot of packaging used in shipping, and the biodegradable packaging is a little bit more expensive, so I like that they are taking that step. Fortunately, I would say they only checked off about two goals here, so not scoring very well. And you know, I think this goes back to something we've talked about a lot, that Sometimes more expensive can mean better for the environment, but it doesn't always. And this is definitely an example of that. One thing that none of these three brands addressed was any of the human-related goals, all of the things that tie into reducing poverty in the world. And I don't like that, especially when we're looking at someone like Love Shack Fancy, where you're spending three, four, five hundred dollars for a dress. You want to assume that the people on the other end who are sewing that, shipping it, selling it, packing it, all of the things are being paid a livable wage because then it's like, wow, suddenly a $300 dress is a hot deal when you know that all these other people are having a good life because of it, right? But they're not speaking to that and neither were any of these other retailers. And none of this surprises me because as we know, the people making, shipping, and selling our clothes are on the bottom rungs of the economic ladder, but only because the industry puts them there. And then we, the consumers, are totally okay with that. We just look the other way. One of the three retailers I discussed today canceled a ton of orders on factories in the wake of COVID and has not bowed to pressures to hashtag pay up. In fact, they have not addressed it publicly on any level. 
another one of these three brands did pay up after intense pressure from customers. So good for them. I hate that we have to bully them into doing it. But then again, I'm glad that they gave in and maybe that will prevent them from doing it in the future. I like to hope for the best, right? And believe the best can happen. So once again, sustainability is about environmental practices, yes, but it's also about labor practices and ethical treatment of workers. Therefore, I cannot consider a brand sustainable if they aren't caring for their workers on all levels of the company. We talk a lot in today's episode about Levi's and how they have been leading the charge in terms of sustainability. And if we score just in terms of environmental terms, then yes, they are killing it. They use some eco-friendly materials, including recycled materials. That's great. They've set a science-based target to reduce greenhouse gas emissions generated from their own operations and their supply chain. And guess what? They're on track to meet that target. I mean, that might be only a goal that has one sentence, like what I just said. But let me tell you, that's a huge accomplishment, especially when we're not just talking about their own facilities, but also their suppliers. That's incredible. So they do deserve kudos for that. They also implemented water reduction initiatives throughout their supply chain. And as we've talked about the crazy amount of water that Denim specifically uses, that's great news. And they set a deadline to eliminate hazardous chemicals by the end of 2020. And they're also on track to meet that target. So this is all really good work. I'm so stoked about it. And they just tackled four, maybe even five SDGs with this list. So they're really coming out ahead here. But then things go downhill when we get to their people and labor-related practices. And it all stems from sort of a lack of transparency. They do not indicate that they provide a living wage, and there's no information about worker health and safety. They canceled a ton of orders on factories in the wake of COVID, but they were eventually pressured to pay up in July. So I'll give them a couple points there. They do publish some information about factory audits and conditions, but only in the final stages of production. So they aren't speaking to dye houses, trim factories, all the other pieces of the supply chain as much as they should be. And they aren't speaking to subcontractors, which as we've talked about in the past, that can be where things really go sideways. Here's what I think about this. When I see a brand trying so hard and so vocally to be sustainable, I feel concerned when they can't speak just as loudly and transparently about their labor practices. Because if they were doing things well here, they would definitely be bragging about it. I mean, it's a, it's a great marketing move and all this other environmental focused stuff has been great for their brand image. So Levi's isn't perfect, but they are better than a lot of other brands and retailers. And that's kind of where we are right now. Like we have to pick the ones that are doing the most good, even though no one's doing it perfectly. It's just kind of how we get there. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be putting pressure on Levi's to take better care of its employees. And that goes into what I wanted to say next, which is, I think it's up to us to remind brands that yes, sustainability includes conservation of water, reduction in carbon footprint, and a transition out of toxic, destructive manufacturing processes. But that's only half the picture because humans are a resource too, and they should be protected and cared for as much as we care for the oceans and forests. And the grouchy, currently hating the whole world part of me says, yeah, this doesn't surprise me because most companies aren't caring for those resources either. So why would they care about the people? 
We have to demand better. Okay, that's my sustainability lesson for the day. I hope it wasn't too boring. And more importantly, I hope you feel more prepared to cast a critical eye on other brands and retailers. I would love to hear about any sustainability detective work that you do. Now it's time for us to get into the last part of our conversation with Michelle, where we'll discuss some of the advances in denim technology. As I've mentioned before, there's some really great potential there. We're also going to talk about how we, the customers, can make better choices about our jeans in the future. So let's get down to it. already determined that denim is terrible for the environment and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. premium denim isn't necessarily better for the environment than cheap denim, etc. Let's talk about sustainability in denim. Every brand that I've seen at market in the last year is like, oh, and then we have our sustainable capsule, our sustainable line. And some of them, I'm going to say this, I I press them on it because I've you know read about it. I've researched it. And I'm like, yeah, like in what ways? Like, what are you doing? Are you doing this? You doing that? And they're like, uh, it's organic. <laughs> like they don't they don't know. Yeah, they don't know. But there are options out there. Things are getting better and kind of slowly. I mm-hmm. read about a Spanish company called Genologia. Genologia, I guess for Americans. Sure. <laughs> sure. It's leading the charge in developing new technology for reducing the devastating impact of the denim industry. And I mean, I'm not sure if we went hard enough on how devastating the denim industry can be, but If you didn't hear about blue rivers and people with lungs full of uh, cotton, then you should probably just rewind. I mean, the the thing is, is that, okay, just like, just point blank, like denim uses a ton of chemicals to process your genes. A shit ton of water. A shit ton of water. Like so much water. And not even just in like the processing, but like also like in the growing of it, dying and the actual dying of the indigo on the thread. There's like water used in like hidden places that you don't even think about. When we talked a little bit earlier about pesticides and like organic, if something says that it's made with organic cotton, guess what? It used even more water. Like even more water. So is that sustainable then? No. Right. No, it's like buying an organic avocado from China at your Whole Foods in LA. <laughs> That's what it's like. Like that thing had to like. I don't know if they're making avocados in China right now. Making instead of growing. Making. I mean, they are somewhere. But you know, like like that's like the distance. You know, it's just like it had to get on a truck, and then it had to get on a plane, and then it had to go through a port, and then it had to get through another truck, and then it da da da. da. You know, it has to do all these things. Well, it's like that's what buying a gene that said it uses organic cotton is. Like it just uses so much water. And it's like, yes, it didn't use the same amount of pesticides, but then it also probably got processed with a bunch of chemicals. So like, what's your gain? Right, right. And so I think it gets so complicated, right? It does. Because we don't want to buy plastic clothes, right? Because they are going to sit in the landfill forever. They're really bad for the environment in a multitude of ways. Like their life cycle is just devastation. Mm -hmm the entire time that garment exists. So we want to buy these like natural fibers, like cotton. We want cotton clothing. But I think it's really important to remember that cotton clothing uses a lot of water and we shouldn't be buying a lot of any kinds of clothes, whether they're organic cotton Mm -hmm. or polyester. It's all about mitigating your consumption. You like, you have to buy less clothes, right? So that's why I keep coming back to like, what will last longer? What could you do? There's technology to make some of this a little bit less devastating. Mm -hmm. One is using lasers 
and air to, to execute the distressing instead of spraying chemicals, which sounds like so futuristic to me. So magical, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Laser technology can give a pair of jeans like a worn look instead of sandblasting, which sounds really gross, like everyone has a dry mouth, or hand sanding. I mean, mm-hmm. both of these things can be so detrimental to the workers. Like, remember, when they're breaking this denim down, all that stuff's going into the air around them. Yeah, they have to wear masks. You know, you think your COVID mask is annoying? Well, imagine working in a denim laundry that doesn't have air conditioning and it's like in the peak of summer and it's like, I don't know, in the 90s out and then it's like in the hundreds in the factory and like you're just sweating bullets and you have a mask on. Sounds fun, right? And you're sanding a pair of jeans. You're sanding a pair of jeans. So some American can look cool. These G2 ozone treatments were introduced in 2005 and they fade down the color of a gene instead of using chemicals like bleep. Mm -hmm. In 2011, they unveiled this eFlow technology that uses air, like nano bubbles Mm -hmm. of air instead of water to dye the genes because it seems like the dyeing and the washing, it's like there's where a lot of the water devastation is coming from. Yeah, yeah, with like chemicals. Like an indigo isn't like a like a fun, like chemical. True indigo. Oh, it smells terrible. It's toxic. The fumes are horrible. Mm-hmm. Now, if you use this system, this yeah. uh, nano bubble technology, denim can be dyed using just a glass of water. I specifically can picture this marketing asset from Levi's that I saw at market that showed that. Yeah, yeah I've seen that. It's great. Yeah. So Levi's has been going after this technology. And I know there's, there's some other brands are doing that, but it's it's still not super widespread. Like 35% of jeans mm-hmm. in the world are made using these more sustainable practices. So that's that's great. But remember in the beginning of the episode, I said we make 6 billion pairs of jeans every year. 35% of 6 billion jeans still leaves 4 billion pairs that are made in a shitty, unsustainable way. I mean, like billion, guys. Right. Billion. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. And here's the deal. Yeah, there's some assholes who work in fashion. There are people who are narcissists and don't give a shit about anyone around them. And I mean, much like any other industry in the world, there's there's some bad people out there. But in general, everybody in the industry wants to do better and does not want to destroy the planet and make all the water blue and all of the workers have lung cancer. Mm-hmm. But it always comes down to right. cost, right? So it's expensive to to put this new technology in place. And that's why it's not happening because not enough big brands are embracing yeah. it. Like if, imagine if the Gap said that they were going to do entirely sustainable denim and not like fake sustainable where it's like, oh, it might be organic cotton, like actually use all these new processes. Right. Or if Levi's made their entire line, yeah. not just one little capsule, made their entire line using these processes, more factories would buy the equipment Probably the people who make the equipment would be able to lower the cost because they'd be selling more. And suddenly it wouldn't be so expensive Mm -hmm. to make these jeans. And then it wouldn't be so expensive for us to buy as customers. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. Laser technology isn't new, new, but the application of how good it's gotten is. I remember like, like, I don't know, like 15 years ago, like they had laser machines in China and I, we would go and, you know, when sustainability wasn't even like, no one would even like know what that word meant. No one cared. No one cared. It's funny to think that that 15 years ago, no one cared about that. But I remember no. those days and all we cared about was the Iraq war. Yeah, that's it. 
So like, <laughs> that's all we cared about. I'm like, oh, cool. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna fly to China. I remember seeing like the the laser machines and them like showing them off, but they just weren't at a point where they produced realistic enough effects, meaning that like it really looked good. Because at the end of the day, you still need to make a product that looks good. Because people aren't going to buy it if it doesn't. And that's where Levi's kind of got involved and started like pushing the envelope for this. Their like chief product officer like started believing in it and pushing it. That's when this technology got really, really great and really important because they put the artisans on it. You know, it's like they got the people that could like go in and like fiddle with it and and make it so that just by using the lasers – it looked, it really did look like it was all hand processed, which is crazy because it did not used to look like that. So basically you have to have like artists that go in and program these like laser programs and because they're doing it in like 3D. So it's like the understanding of that had to come about too. You know, it's, it's not just the laser, it's the operator and it's the person that's creating this program, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of times even what happens like like with like Levi's is like they'll, you know, it's like they'll wash down, you know, like their denim to like whatever shade they want, however they want to wash it down, whether, mm-hmm. whether they're using, you know, typical techniques or ozone or whatever. And then they'll just go in at the end and then just they'll just like laser everything. And it looks perfect. It looks like like a hand done wash when it's not. It's just it's really crazy, like the level of expertise that they've gotten out of it. But yeah, it takes more people adopting it and like bigger brands adopting it. You know, it would take like Uniqlo doing it. It would take a Gap doing it. It would take Old Navy doing it. And like, yeah, you don't think of these people as premium, but that's who it takes to get in there because they have the capital and they have the money to invest mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. these things. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, the the smaller manufacturers – you know, meaning the smaller laundries and wash houses, they just don't. And they're not going to unless mm-hmm. they know that their customers mm-hmm. care about it and that they can pay them for those machines and they can use them. Mm-hmm. Because if no one is requesting it and no one cares about it, they're not going to invest. Right. And I mean, we're talking huge changes for them at a lot of expense, like the factories. I mean, like yeah. you have to train yeah. the people to use this equipment for one. You're going to have yeah. to pull out yeah. all the other equipment that you already had, replace it with brand new equipment, yeah. onboard everyone. Yep. It's – I mean, it's like millions of dollars. Yeah, and you'd probably have to close down the factory for a month or two to accomplish all that, so you're missing income. It needs the subsidy of these larger brands to make it happen, and if yeah. it happened, then everybody could get it, and then suddenly you could get jeans at – target that only used one glass of water. Right. It also rests on the shoulders of us as consumers to say, if I can afford not to buy $20 jeans, then I will upgrade to someone who is using these processes. If you can't afford to do mm-hmm. that, that's okay too, as we've said. But money talks. Mm-hmm. We can ask these these larger retailers to provide this product for us, and maybe they will. I was thinking the other day about how some brands have tried to pay some lip service to sustainability like H&M and Zara while other brands never talk about it ever. Like, have you ever – I mean, I don't really – to be fair, I don't pay a lot of attention to what's going on at Gap. Right. I've never heard the Gap talk about sustainability, <laughs> you know? No, and I've never heard the Old Navy. Yeah. I no, just, like, no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I could be totally wrong. I don't know, but it, I just – I haven't heard that. Yeah, me neither. And so 
if we want to continue buying from those brands, we need to push them to make these changes or we just need to give our money to someone else. I, that's the only way this is going to happen. Maybe you don't buy you know, five or six pairs of $20 jeans. Maybe you buy one pair of Levi's using this new technology for you know, 100, 120 because that's about the price point, I think, for these. And I think some of mm-hmm. them are, are even less than 100 And again, you know, Levi's can do this because Mm -hmm. they have units to back them. That's right. And they have the relationships with the factories. You know, you have to be able to promise a factory that they're going to get a ton more business after they make these changes. Or you go in partnership with them and you partner on the machinery. The partnership is a big part of it too. So basically what we're saying is it's out there. As I mentioned, it's only 35% of the genes that are made in the world, which is not very much. Imagine if you got a 35% on a test, you'd be very bummed. You'd be so bummed. You, I mean, you would have failed. <laughs> you'd be grounded. You'd be so grounded, grounded for a while. Like, you would not be able to buy jeans with your allowance because you wouldn't be getting it. <laughs> like, well, definitely not designer jeans, at no, least. No, your parents would have totally like yeah. suspended your allowance and given you extra chores if you got a 35%. So... Yeah, yeah. So this is not a good grade for the denim industry. So basically what it means is most of the jeans that are out there that we as consumers can buy right now are not sustainably made and are consuming a ton of water. So that raises the next question. Is buying vintage or resale the best option when it comes to denim? What what do you think, Michelle? I mean, you have like 900 pairs of jeans, so. I know. So like for me, it's like a no-brainer. I fully support purchasing vintage and resale. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be vintage, you know, definitely resale. I mean, like there's like great options, Buffalo Exchange and Crossroads and eBay and 800 million other ways to buy resale clothing. I also particularly like the hunt of vintage. I I like that, you know, I'm finding something special. I like that I'm not contributing to buying something that had to be made specifically for that. You know, it's like, it's already made, it's been around. Someone already did that work for me, essentially. However long ago they did it, maybe it was five years ago, maybe it was 10 years ago, maybe it was 50 years ago. I don't know. I wholeheartedly support buying vintage and secondhand. But some people like aren't into that. Like, you know, I know some people are just like, ew, gross. No, never not doing that. So, you know, that's valid too. I'm not here to say like, you should only buy vintage and secondhand and shame on you if you don't. (laughs) Like, right. I mean, sometimes depending on your size, like, especially if you're really tall, yeah, it's hard. Forget it. You're never going to find a pair of vintage jeans. Yeah. I mean, no. so it's not for everyone, but it is an option that's out yeah. there. And I tend to believe that if the jeans have lasted this long to get into my hands, they're going to last a long time with me as well. I take care of my stuff. When my jeans get a hole or, you know, especially if they get a hole somewhere like in the crotch or like in the butt that I don't want that area of skin showing, instead of getting rid of them, I just patch them. And then I have like a whole new jean. I have jeans that are like so, so patched. It's just, it's literally, there's like no original fabric left in it anymore. Like it's just like seams that that like used to exist. And now it's just like entirely new pieces Mm -hmm. of fabric that are like holding it together. Right. I'm like, well, man, this is new. But you know, it's like, I think that that's like a big part of it. And I know even Levi's did a program like that too, where you could bring in your kind of jeans and they would patch them and repair them for you, which I think is also really great. You know, so if you have a pair of jeans that like you love and they happen to break somewhere that, or maybe you just don't like, you know, if there is a hole in them, 
like regardless of where it is, maybe it's in the knee, maybe it's in the thigh, whatever. Patch it. Totally. A lot of the nicer denim brands are starting to offer that service. Like I know Nudie does it. Uh, Dustin's taken, my, Dustin, my husband, mm-hmm. has taken advantage of that yeah, a lot Nudie of times. He only buys one pair of jeans every one to two years. Yeah. And he just wears them every day and patches the hell yep. out of them. Also, there are like some, there's some cool artistry around the Japanese art of repairing clothing, especially denim. And you can take classes both in person or online. Yeah. Uh, there's a store in LA called the East West Shop that offers classes from time to time. And it's really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I highly recommend that. It's a good quarantine craft activity to fix all your jeans. Totally. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's like personalization too, you know, then like, then really no one has anything like what you have. Exactly. Exactly. I yeah. I, I like it. I like that. I don't, I, I don't like having things that other people have. Yeah, totally. totally. <laughs> I want to be a special snowflake. I just I, like no one else can have anything that I have. No, I'm, I mean obviously I'm, pretty. but like <laughs> I like that aspect of like reuse and redo. I think that there's you know something like really cool about it. I like giving new life to things, so I do that quite often. I think that pretty much every single pair of jeans I own has been repaired or patched. At, this point. Well, and I think it's really cool so. because people notice and are impressed when they see that you've done something like that because not everyone knows that that's something you can even do. So I think there's like a level of pr- yeah. pride for repairing and, and extending yeah. the longevity of your clothes. So I fully, fully support that. Yeah. And I mean, for those that are in LA, just really quick, there's like two amazing alteration shops. One is in the Valley. It's called, I think it's called like Dr. Denim. And that's a really great resource <laughs> or denim doctor or something. <laughs> I don't know. But it, if like you Google it, like you can find it. Sorry. I have like terrible. I'm just like, I don't know. It's like one of these names. And then there's like another one called Denim Revival on third. And they also do really great repairs. I mean, not always the cheapest, but like they can make a whole look invisible. Wow. So if you're into that also, yeah. yeah, they can darn it in a way that like it doesn't even look like it's even patched. So that's really cool too. That's super cool. So are there things you can do as a jeans owner to make your pants last longer and then therefore waste less? So you think that people should wash their jeans. I hear from other people that you should like never wash your jeans and I am always so torn on it. Like what – you're the professional. So what is your ruling on washing jeans? I think you should wash your jeans because – Here's the thing, like your body is like filled with like oils and dirt and that oil and dirt is rubbing off on your jeans and that actually erodes the fabric the longer it sits on there. It like eats it essentially, which is super gross. I'm not saying wash your jeans every single time you wear them. I I do not do that. My rigid jeans, like I probably wash them every 10 wears or something. That seems reasonable. Yeah. And then I think like, like I have like a couple of pairs of like comfort stretch jeans that have a really, really low elastic rate in them that look rigid and that I really love and, you know, are like my comfy jeans when I just can't deal with the tightness of the rigid. Like if I want to like go out and like <laughs> eat a really big meal or something, I'm like, maybe I'm going to wear these. Right. I get it. We all have those moments or like, you know, whatever, like you're bloated from your period or like just, there's any number of things that can happen that make you want to put on like a not rigid pair of pants, quarantine, whatever. Those I tend to wash a little bit more often. I'll wash those like every like 
from maybe like five wears, I'd say, you know, just so that the fabric doesn't like break down. Um, I tend to wash all my stuff in cold or tap cold. Okay. That was going to be my next question. Okay. Yeah. Cold water. Yeah. I wash my stuff in tap cold. I put it in the dryer. Like I'm not precious about my stuff and my stuff tends to last a long time because I wash it in cold and I'm not washing it all the time. I use like gentle mm-hmm. detergents. I use like sensitive skin detergents. So maybe that has something to do with it. My jeans tend to last a really long time. I mean, I have jeans in, that I currently wear today that I've had for 20 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, that I still wear, you know, that are still in my rotation. Wait, are they Genco's? They're Genco's. They are. Are they Genco's? Yeah. Um, I, I currently wear them with like two other people at the same time. We just step in and we all exist in the same leg together. Um, we're talking about getting um, another two people in our pod for the other leg, but, you know, it's quarantine. It's hard. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, I have like other yeah. pairs of jeans that I've had for like – 10 years. I have jeans I've had for five years. And, you know, it's like I still wear them and that's with washing Mm -hmm. them and all that stuff. But again, most of my jeans are rigid. So I think that's probably why they last longer. Although I have, I do have comfort stretch jeans that I've had for probably four years now that are still like in great shape. I mean, that's a long time for a stretchy pair of jeans. I know that comfort stretch is different, but most of those stretchy jeans, if you can get them to last a year, it's yeah. kind of miraculous. Yeah. I mean, like the comfort stretch is like a really low stretch. The ones that are like higher stretch that like, you know, you can fit like two people in at the same time, those are going to break down like much faster than a comfort stretch. Like a comfort stretch is really as it sounds. It means like it still is pretty rigid. It just moves with your body a little bit better mm-hmm. and gives you like a little bit more leeway, like, but not much. Like if it came in an inch small, Mm -hmm. it would probably be a problem. But if it came in a half inch small or like a three, maybe three quarter inch small, you'd maybe get away with it. But whereas with rigid, if it comes in an inch small, like you're screwed. It's all over. (laughs) Yeah, it's all over. Like you should just burn the pants just immediately. (laughs) Just set them all on fire and just like Set them on fire. It's it's the only thing you can do. It's the only thing. It really is. It's the only thing you can do. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, for being a guest. Do you have anything else you want to add? Do you have any final thoughts, feelings, things you got to get off your chest? It's a really weird thing to talk about something that you've done for so long and that you've been so passionate about and yet is like so terrible for the environment. And it's like that's how you've existed and been successful and made money and you've been part of the problem. It's a weird thing to talk about and kind of come to terms with and, you know, as I said earlier, it's like I I still do consult and work with brands and although, you know, who knows now, <laughs> they're probably like, oh my God, negative Nancy over here. Like we cannot have her in our design house. Denim is a, it, it is a really magical kind of fabric to me. I just, I love it. And I could like talk about it for like hours and hours on end. I think that both Amanda and I in our in our hopes, you know, when she asked me to do this podcast was just really kind of just letting people understand what goes into making a pair of jeans. And like, there's like probably hours more that we could have talked about things. 
But hopefully there's like the basis of an understanding there. So when you go to buy that pair of jeans, like you know, oh, I know why this was only $20 or I know kind of why this is like $200. You know, you can kind of like see the differences for yourself and and just be able to make an informed decision. As both of us have said throughout this podcast, there is no judgment on anyone for making any sort of decision either way. But we do have a hope that we as consumers are able to make a change and to help sway these bigger companies to take part in these really great sustainable practices. Because unless they do it, it's going to be really hard for everyone else to jump on board. So the only way that we do that is through making noise as consumers and demanding it from them. Mm-hmm, definitely. And you know what? Withholding our money. Yeah. I've worked for businesses that were on the decline and then suddenly things that didn't seem to be a possibility in the past were something we could talk about. Like, for example, this is a totally different thought area, but at Nasty Gal, I came to the table and was like, we need to do festival. Festival is so important. Festival, festival, festival. But upper management was like, festival is is not aspirational. We don't want to be involved in that. We don't want boho clothes. We don't want crochet tops, you know, that kind of thing. Well, you know what? Sales just continued to dip and dip and dip. And it was like, okay, okay, you know what? We need to sell festival stuff. Could you please go to market and find some festival? Yeah. It's not the same as sustainability, but it is when you're in a business like that, that if you see your sales are falling off and you start to talk to customers and they're saying, I wish that you made clothes that lasted longer, that weren't as bad for the environment. They have no choice but to listen. Yeah. When you start withholding your dollars from them, sure. Yeah. Right now we are in the midst of an unprecedented time when it comes to fashion as far as like what's happening to the industry right now with COVID. I think that it is a great time for us to be able to use our voice and say, you know, please make these changes so that we can support you. We want to support you. Let us do that. Totally. I mean, I would say that your money is even more valuable to brands and retailers right now because they're getting like, they're frightened. Absolutely. They're getting a lot less of it. So every cent you spend with them has more gravity. Yeah. It really, really, really does. It really does. Like that's just like, just point blank. The retail industry is in a tailspin right now, unfortunately, you know, as are a lot of other industries. It would be great if, you know, these larger companies could kind of step forward and start utilizing these kind of platforms and just really kind of move forward with helping the environment and like letting people help them do it. Not to get all like peace and love, but that's what, you know. If only it was so simple. (laughs) I know. I do feel like this is a time when we could change things. That's all I'll say. Maybe we won't, but everything is so upside down right now and seems to be getting worse with every passing day that it could be a new era when all of this is over. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't that be great? It would be great. Let's just keep telling ourselves that. (laughs) I'm just going to like – Hug my pillow and tell myself that. (laughs) Yes, yes, until it's true. Well, thank you so much. You're so welcome. It was so nice to be on the podcast. Thank you so much to Michelle for being interviewed for over three hours. (laughs) 
We also had like a five hour phone call to plan everything out. I mean, she put so much work into our conversation and I'm so grateful for that. If you're missing Michelle already, because I know I am, she will be back this fall for an episode about fashion as a feminist issue. Yeah, I know that's basically a whole season of content right there. So it might be part of a longer series, but I think it's a really important story to tell. And I know she's as passionate about it as I am. I wanted to say a few things about Gap and their sustainability efforts, because Michelle and I touched on that earlier. First off, there is a wealth of information regarding their sustainability initiatives on their website. And if they really achieve everything they're saying, they will be hitting a majority of the UN sustainable development goals, which is is good. And I have to say, their initiatives are far more fleshed out than just about any other retailer I've checked recently. But there's always a but, right? While they want to reduce their environmental impact, ensure the health and well-being of their entire supply chain, etc., the reality is that they just aren't there yet. And I get it. It's a huge undertaking, right? As we've talked about in the past, it's going to involve rebuilding practically every factory on their supply chain if they want to do it the right way. They do use some eco-friendlier materials and some recycled materials, and that's a great start. As you know by now, it's better than a lot of brands out there. However, there is no evidence that they reduce their textile waste during manufacturing. And the amount of fabric waste generated by manufacturing is pretty staggering in general. So this is a huge area of opportunity for the entire industry. But if Gap wants to be a leader in sustainability, they need to work on that too. Gap also set a science-based target to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, which is great. As I've mentioned, a ton of other retailers that you probably buy from right now are not doing that, but there's no evidence that they're on track to meet this goal. So at that point, it's like, is it just lip service? I don't know. Maybe they're just not being transparent enough to it. There are a lot of things that could be a play there. On the other hand, there's clear evidence that they are leaders in the industry for managing water use in the supply chain. When we talk about denim, we're talking about a lot of water. So that's a start. It's not as good as Levi's, but it's definitely above average for the industry. I can't say that enough. As I was working on this episode this week and working on my stuff for Fashion Revolution, I was examining tons of different retailers and brands, sustainability initiatives, and also, you know, trying to parse out the fact from the fiction. And the reality is a ton of people aren't doing anything. So yeah, Gap is doing some good stuff there with the environmental impact of their manufacturing. It's not perfect, but like, let's give them some credit. But it's important to remember, environmental actions are only half of the sustainability pie. Environmentalism is, or at least it should be, a social justice movement because the other half of the sustainability pie is all the people involved in creating, making, shipping, and selling all of those Gap clothes. And guess what? There's no transparency into their supply chain. They do share some information about the last stages of manufacturing, like sewing, but nothing about the suppliers, wash houses, etc. And so that means there's very little information about wages, safety, and overall factory conditions. Once again, there are brands out there that are doing even less. So Gap is still better than a lot of other brands. <laughs> They did, however, cancel a ton of orders in the wake of COVID-19, but they caved to public pressure by promising to pay for all of the canceled orders 
and they compensated suppliers for storage fee payments to keep their goods because basically factories had already made them or were just sort of sitting on them. So that's a little bit of extra money going into their pocket. And they have promised to provide low cost financing for all delayed payments. So once again, Gap doing more than a lot of other retailers are. It sucks that we had to like bully them into it, but it's kind of good to see that they listened and they cared because once again, there are a lot of brands, I want to say it's about 17, when I say brands, I'm talking like major retailers that are not only not paying up, they're like, they're just not doing it. They aren't even speaking to it or acknowledging it publicly, even though there is a clear chain of evidence that they did in fact cancel a ton of orders on factories. I guess I would say overall, the Gap is doing better than most, but they have a long way to go. When I'm talking about Gap, I'm including Old Navy, Banana Republic, and Athleta. So if you love these brands, and to be honest, Old Navy does have the cutest kids' clothes, always has somehow, <laughs> then you should push them to do better. And this is not a license to go buy tons of stuff from them that you don't need. We still have to practice moderation on our side, but we can also support brands that are doing better job than others when we need to buy stuff, right? As consumers, we wield a lot of power. I mean, multiple times in this episode alone, I've mentioned how retailers gave in to public outcry regarding cancellations of orders, and they paid for them. Like, all we had to do was berate them on social media and via email and maybe even some old-fashioned letters and postcards. And you know what? They listened. One thing that these brands have in common is that they are trying to do things in a better way. Like there was already a demonstrable pattern of doing things better before pay up. So they were already listening to what was going on in the world and reacting appropriately. Meanwhile, the brands that refuse to pay up and aren't even addressing it publicly have one other thing in common, their lack of true effort towards sustainability. As I've mentioned, sussing out who is doing a good job versus who is doing a bad job is really hard. You can do what I did in the introduction of the episode by reading all the corporate sustainability info the company provides on its site. And while that's a good start, you might not see the whole picture because once again, the language on their site about their sustainability is almost more like what they'd like to do, but not necessarily a confirmation of of what they have accomplished, right? So Good On You collects over 500 data points per brand across more than 100 key sustainability issues, indicators, and standard systems. So it's it's very nuanced. It's a lot more detailed than what I did in the beginning of the episode. And they take a critical eye. Like once again, a lot of this sustainability speak can just be more of a wish list or a best case scenario plan, but they actually weigh third-party sources according to their scope and the quality of their assurance. So how well they ensure brands comply with the standards that have been set. And they look at the company's impact on the planet, the people and animals. So it's a full picture of a company's sustainability. I think it's super helpful. And they have a ton of denim brands, for example, that are doing a great job. So being a conscious consumer is a lot easier. I would urge you to think of the places you shop most often or dream of shopping the most often and search them on good on you because for me it made it really easy to see whose apps I was going to delete from my phone (laughs) and whose emails I was going to unsubscribe from and I think that's a big step towards living a more sustainable lifestyle on your own 
I know I promised the debut of my Ask Amanda advice segment today, but instead, I'm going to use this time to talk about the journey of Francois Jabot. You might remember him from the first denim episode. He's credited with pioneering the process of stonewashing denim. He and his wife, Mariti, I hope I'm doing an okay job there. French is one of the few languages I haven't studied at all. And it's the bane of my existence. (laughs) So anyway, he and his wife founded their own fashion label in 1964, calling it, shockingly enough, Mariti and Francois Jabot. And this brand was huge during the 80s and 90s. So if you don't remember it, that's okay. But let me show you some examples of how huge they were. In 1983, they created the costumes for the main characters of Flashdance, which I have a lot of problems with the plot of that movie now in 2020. But as a kid, when I saw it, I thought it was so cool and so sexy and so stylish. In 1992, Criss Cross, do you remember them? I believe they were 13 years old. They wore Jabot jeans backwards, of course, in the video for Jump. I mean, that is iconic. Also, I remember, and I don't know if you recall this video, the thing that really struck me when I saw this video for the first time is that they were 13 years old, both of the boys, and they were driving a car in the video. That just, it didn't add up to me. It didn't feel like a documentary, I guess. In the 80s, the company did about $900 million in sales worldwide, which... I don't know. That doesn't sound like a lot. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd love someone to give me $900 million. But then I was like, oh, right. That's a different amount of money in 2020. And you know what it is? It's $1.8 billion. So that gives you a better idea of how massive this company was. I mean, huge. So basically, Jabot is a massive company that sold what experts would call a shit ton of jeans. In this century, Jabot has turned his attention into making the denim industry better for the millions of garment workers that weave, wash, distress, and sew our jeans. Because as Michelle and I have talked about at length, this industry is really hard for the humans who work within it. In 2011, he told Women's Wear Daily, buying a jean is also a political act. There's still time to invent a new tomorrow. And I love that. Of course, you know, that's right up my alley. He's been speaking out against an industry that first produces and dyes denim via tremendous use of water and toxic indigo, but then uses many processes and chemicals that endanger workers to break it all back down again. I mean, it's kind of crazy when you look at it that way. (laughs) He's been pioneering the shift from the old, or to be honest, more like current way of scraping down denim manually, which one, sounds like a horrible job, and two, results in repetitive motion injuries for workers, to sandblasting, which, as we've mentioned previously, this leads to occupational asthma, and of course, spraying bleaches and potassium, which causes a litany of health issues. Jaboa maintains that the denim industry is at an ethical crossroads, and you know what? I would agree. He says, it is our collective responsibility to consider the social impact of what we do. I mean, that applies to the entire fashion industry, right? The social impact. And once again, it's really exciting to me to hear someone who is just campaigning for sustainability to recognize that it's not just the environmental effects, which are very important, but 
also the impact on the humans working in the industry. We just don't hear that enough. And I think even for us, we're probably not thinking about it that way, but now you're hearing me say it and you're like, oh yeah, wow, that's really shitty that my genes might've made someone infertile or gave them respiratory problems. So yeah, the denim industry and really the entire fashion industry is at this ethical crossroads. And I would say that we, the customers, are at the same place, right? We can either continue to shell out our hard-earned money for genes that endanger other humans, or we can pay a couple bucks more just to get a pair that is ethically made. And of course, we still have to buy less genes in the first place. You can't forget that. It's a lot of things to think about. As I mentioned during my convo with Michelle, lasers are the big leap forward in denim technology. They make sense even from a time is money perspective. A denim factory can finish 10 pairs of jeans an hour through manual scraping. And I also just want to say I really would like to never have to say the phrase manual scraping ever again. It's really cringy. (laughs) Anyway, so 10 pairs an hour that way, right? 30 pairs an hour via sandblasting. Okay, seems a lot more efficient, and 60 pairs an hour with potassium spraying. So, okay, it kind of backs up that idea that Michelle was saying that cheaper genes tend to be just sprayed a lot more aggressively because it's faster, and we know that time and manpower are kind of one of the biggest costs. Well, a laser machine can produce between 60 and 120 pairs an hour. So that's a huge shift, right? Like much more efficient. Would make sense that if you want to make jeans less expensively, laser is the way to go. I mean, it's definitely a win from a profitability standpoint, not just environmentally. And then there's ozone, which we also spoke about earlier, and its savings come from a variety of sources. So in the conventional wet process that most of our denim experiences right now, 20 gallons of water, one kilowatt hour of electricity, and a little bit more than a quarter pound of chemicals are used to treat a single pair of jeans. Yes, one pair of jeans. Okay, so 20 gallons of water for one pair of jeans. And I also just like to remind you that we're talking about just the treatment part of denim manufacturing. So we're not talking about the dyeing, the growing of the cotton or anything like that, which also use a ton of water. This is more like, okay, now we're trying to break it down, make it softer, make it look vintage. The ozone method uses 70% less water, so about six gallons of water compared to 20, and less than half the energy, and I did some calculations here, guys, one twentieth of a pound of chemicals, so less than an ounce. If we rolled that out to the entire industry, the implications are pretty staggering. The amount of water that ozone technology saves would equal two years of water consumption in Paris. And the energy saved would equal two years of general energy consumption in Nepal. That's a lot. Jabot has been working with various companies, including Genologia. Genologia? I have no idea. I'm going to just keep butchering that. Genologia? I'm not sure. Anyway, he's been working with this company that starts with a J and ends with an A. (laughs) to develop and roll out these processes across the industry. He's been a major advocate and sort of like, I don't know, conduit for changing the way jeans are made. As for stonewashed jeans, he said, I refuse to do stonewash like everyone else. I didn't want to make jeans like that anymore. Thanks for listening to another episode of Clothes Horse. 
Once again, the Ask Amanda advice segment is moving out. I had to tell you more fun gene stuff, right? But that gives you more time to hit me up with your own questions about the industry and your shopping quandaries. Let me help you. I'm also in the early stages of planning a group of episodes about the experiences and rights of retail workers. And I'm looking for stories from you. Honestly, it's going to help me shape what those episodes look like and the kind of information I want to pursue. Do you have a story to share? Please email me at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com. I would love to talk to you about your own experiences as a retail worker. I'm also putting together a directory of good brands, designers, and vintage sellers for the Clothes Horse website. If you're interested in participating, reach out. It's moving along kind of slowly because I'm also looking for a new place to live. Dustin and I are hoping to relocate ourselves and our army of cats to Lancaster County. So it's just a lot going on right now. If you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Let's get more people participating in the movement to stop giving money to assholes. And thank you to everyone who reposts on Instagram or sends me a nice message. You make my day every time you do that. And oh yeah, we're on Instagram at Close Horse Podcast. And you can listen to all of the past Close Horse episodes on our website, clotheshorsepodcast.com. Pretty shocking URL, I know. (laughs) Thanks, as always, to Dustin Travis White for our theme music and audio support. He's a really premium pair of jeans. Bye. (laughs) 